This podcast is brought to you with support from The Big Idea, New Zealand's online hub for creative people. The Big Idea aims to support talented, innovative individuals and organisations and advocates for creativity as an essential ingredient in the cultural and economic wealth of New Zealand. Their website is thebigidea.nz. Welcome along to Don't Give Up Your Day Job, the podcast. The only podcast you need. For for all of your needs, for every need you could ever want in your whole life, this <laughs> will answer those needs. It'll speak to them and it will solve all of your problems. Yep, that's right. Our guest today, Danny, is, is a young man by the name of Stephen Gallagher. Yes. And he's a film composer, he's a music editor, and he's a top bloke. Yeah. As people will discover when uh, when we talk to him. And he certainly worked on some big movies. Yes, probably the most, oh, well I don't want to say most notably, but people will know the Hobbit soundtrack that he worked on. Um, he worked, he wrote a song for the Hobbit movie. Yep. He engineered um, the, the Ed Sheeran song, The Icy Fire. Right. Um, which was a worldwide hit for Ed Sheeran. And, and of course he's done uh, scores and scores of scores for short films, documentaries, uh, feature-length film he's got coming out shortly, um, Human Traces. Yep. Uh, I, I think, in fact, the, the film may already have been released. And he sent us a sneak preview of the soundtrack, which we both had to listen to. I've been what did you think? I've actually been listening to it solidly ever since. I, I, it's beautiful, I, isn't I, it? I absolutely, yeah. I absolutely love it. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. It's, it's haunting. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not even sure if that's available for people to buy. I mean, we probably should have asked Stephen that when we talked to him. Good point. Because um, yeah. well, if I remember correctly, what he sent us came with some artwork, so maybe it is being maybe maybe it is being released. Oh yeah, good point. Yeah. So uh, human traces. Keep it. Keep an eye or an ear out for that. And you know a lot about film and film composing and so on. And, and uh, I don't know. Oh, you don't? I don't know if I could. I don't know if I could say that. It's definitely. It was definitely a hobby of mine. Right. Um and. I naively went into um, it was probably about five or six years ago now, where I thought, "Hey, I might be able to transition into some film scoring here from from being in a rock band. Just you know, have a little an extra um, bow. Uh, what do you call it? String in the bow. Yep. And um, and I didn't know of anybody in New Zealand who was doing that, and so I couldn't. You know, I tried to reach out to people, and I actually just started a Facebook page. Um, a little arrogant or presumptuously called um, New Zealand film composers because <laughs> right. I hadn't I'd only ever really done short films yeah um, in my time <laughs> and um, and then we connected you know quite a few people connected on that and then it just so happened that um, the Screen Composers Guild kind of fell out of that really and that's how I met Stephen he was <clears throat> coming to a few seminars so the so um, the guild evolved from from that beginning is that what you saying? Yeah, from that kind of connection for people who are doing film scoring in in this country, um, right? Uh, essentially, it was just like you know sharing resources and sharing ideas and sharing problems and issues. Right. There was, the, in fact, the, the the reason I started it really was because I was getting annoyed a little bit about being undercut on on gigs. Gotcha. Um, you know, like I would have clients come back and go, well. Uh, we have another um, film composer or another composer who will do this for for this price. Yeah, and it just got to the point where it was just a you know downward spiral, and I had to go well go and get them, use them then, you know, because <laughs> I can't do it for any you know lower than whatever the, you know the price was. So and so, what did you uh, hope to? How did you hope to you know affect that or counter that by starting the guild? Well, I think that um, you know we should have. A, well, I thought that we could kind of make an agreement. 
that we don't go below, don't undercut each other, mm. you know, don't cut each other's lunch and don't go below a certain... So have a rack card, really. Right. Um, that, that 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 we kind of try and stick to in an informal way. I didn't want it to be a union or anything um, as involved in that, just maybe an informal gathering of sure. people. So we were, we did start out as an incorporated society. I think it still is, actually. I left the guild um, structure probably about two years ago now just because I had a whole bunch of other things going on and uh, but it's still running strong and do you They're think do you think that things? the main like is the, is the main and and predominant agenda for people doing like undercutting each other is this competing with each other is this literally trying to outcompete and get the sale or do you think there are other factors and other other things going on uh, I, I think it's just trying to get the work really right yeah and and I felt like if we you know if we knew each other and we had a bit of um there was some a, a sort of a fraternity, if you like, or mm. a, a brother or sisterhood, um, we wouldn't do that to each other. The reason why I ask is because there's, there's so many parallels in the music world. I mean, we come across this all the time in, in musician land, you know, and, yeah. and and I know that musicians try to undercut each other sometimes and give better prices and that sort of thing, you know. Mm. Uh, I mean, that is to a point that is just business, but there is there, mm. to a point, you know. Um, but the, yeah. but the other um, the other things that come into play, especially in this country. Are one uh, people not valuing themselves and going mm. well? Well, I'll undersell myself because I don't really think I'm worth that much. And then the yeah. o- the other one that I've noticed are people who play as a hobby, and so they've got a job, they've got a life, they've got their income sorted out, like they've everything's in place, and they just play for a bit of a bit of a laugh on the weekend. And so the, the mm. they and their their band will go and play at the local pub or something for peanuts because yep. in their mind it's just a bit of a laugh, you know. But what they don't realize, yeah, yeah. what they don't realize is they're making it impossible for the actual professionals out there to to mm. try and demand anything, you know, worthwhile. Agreed, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that that was how I how I met Stephen. Yeah. And you know, th- there is a bunch of them. Um. So that's why I see at the outtake outset of this. Um conversation about how I was naive thinking that mm. hey I'm gonna start this revolution here <laughs> when actually there was a group core group of them down in Wellington who uh, who were already kind of doing that they were already talking to each other yep and uh, and the guild was a way to sort of formalize that a little bit more and bring them together um, over seminars and, and workshops and so forth but uh, but one thing I did notice about the Wellington crew is they all knew each other and they were all super into it and they were all friends and they were all you know um supportive of one another right and 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 uh, and that was different from the the crew up in Auckland you know that was an, a major difference that that we noticed um so what? we went down there a couple of times for for some things less support in the community in Auckland do you think yeah well just um they didn't really didn't seem to know each other or um uh, yeah i guess work as well together it seemed at the right. time, and yeah. I, th- I, th- I definitely think that's changed, and that's no in no small part to the um, to the guild. Yeah, you know, um, because they're still having gatherings and they're still having seminars and workshops. So yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it, when yeah. you find other communities of creative people who are really supportive of each other. Um, there's not really anything to achieve by cutting each other down. No, not at all. I mean, yeah. we had a few people questioning our motives and why we were doing, you know, even doing the guild, you know. Uh, yeah. trying to create a job for ourselves. It, it really wasn't that. It was charity. We were doing charity work. It was all free. Right, um, yeah. Um, for the most part, sometimes if we were working long, long hours, we had some funding. We would go, oh, look, I just need to, because I had to put on some other work here. But yeah. for the most part, we were only probably charging for about 10% of the time we put into it. So it was 
seen as as a way of community building to right. the point where I was doing quite a bit of that and you know playing in the band where I didn't have time to even do any music of my own you know um ironically film scoring yeah uh, I couldn't even go out there and find any so earlier yeah. when you said you're referring to you you having started it and you said um Something along the lines of, uh, did you say ignorantly or something? You so, yeah, so, yeah uh, naively, yeah. naively, yeah. Um, and the first thing I thought was, you should never feel like you have to justify or apologise for being proactive. I think proactivity is mm. crucial. And even, I mean, when are you really ever qualified in this game? You know, like yeah, what, like what qualifies us to do this podcast? You know, I mean, yeah, we're both experienced musicians, but why should we think anyone has any interest in hearing what we have to say? Um, they don't. Have you seen our numbers lately? <laughs> But I mean, everything that's ever happened is started by someone just saying, "Let's do it. Let's try it." Yeah, yeah, you that's know? right. And you learn as you go. Yeah, and and hopefully something good will come of it. And I think it has. I think it's done. It's done wonderful things. Right. And you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about how a lot of musicians get shit for doing charity work. Yeah. You you mean on previous episodes, eh? No, 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 no. Um, how before we started recording tonight, we were talking about. Oh right. Um, yeah. The whole the whole charity gig thing that oh that i see that. like the charity thing yeah yeah uh i mean yeah this uh, it depends like i guess what you're talking about i mean if you're talking about like big celebrities doing charity stuff i've never understood why people are so cynical about it and and get mm. so uh, so angry at at the likes of bono and people like that i mean we're angry at people for doing good things yeah what do you where do you think that cynicism comes from i, I don't know <laughs> i don't yeah. know is it is it because they feel like someone like Bono is elevating himself by doing these things. Is that the problem? Like they, they accuse him of having like a Jesus complex or something. <laughs> and, and even if he does, isn't that still better than not doing anything? Yeah, I mean, uh, it might be something to do with the fact that uh, there are probably two strands to it, but yeah. it might be that you were seeing, if we're going to talk about Bono, you'd see him <laughs> and you know, he would turn up to the opening of a letter. That's how often he was around. <laughs> um but I also think that it reminds people and makes them feel a little bit guilty because they haven't maybe done something good for someone today. I, I actually had yeah. I had a, a sort of short debate with someone about Bono years ago. Um, I, I may have already told the story in a previous episode, but um, mm. this guy was going on about Bono, and I said, "What's what's the what's your problem with Bono?" And he said, "Do you know he's got a collection of expensive cars?" And I said. Okay, what what's that got to do with anything? And he goes, well, yeah. you, well, you know, these these expensive cars are worth millions and millions of dollars. He's got garages full of the things, supercars and old things and whatever. And I was like, I still don't quite understand your point. And he goes, well, he's going yeah. on about giving all this money to charity, but he's got a collection of cars. And I said, what? What? Can he do both? Yeah, I, yeah. I said, do you have any concept how much money that guy makes? <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, so you know, he, he, obviously, this guy seems to be under the impression that if he's if you're going to say something or give give anything away, you've got to give everything away. <laughs> you know, right? But right. I but I said to him, well, how much have you given to charity? And he goes, mm. oh, well, nothing. But I'm just a young guy. You know, I don't have you know much. I'm not rich or anything like that. And I said, "Sorry, man. Statistically speaking, you're in the top three percent of wealth in the world." Right. Yeah, <laughs> and there you go. he just went quiet. And I'm like, <laughs> it's, so. Yeah. So maybe it is that that when someone excels, it makes people around them feel bad. There, there is a flip side to that coin, though. There are um, sometimes there is an expectation that that you will give your time freely for things, and yeah, and people get a little bit pissed if you. Um, I was asked recently if I could. 
um, saw some some musicians to come down and, and and do this thing in um, in Christchurch, right, for a school charity um, event. Yeah. Uh, for someone who knows, and I don't really even know the person. Not that it would matter too much. I mean, they can approach me. I don't, I don't mind. But, yeah. but I felt like, oh shit! How do I tell this person? I don't really. It's not like I have um, Dobbin on speed dial, and <laughs> I can go, hey, can you do me a favor? My friend yeah. of a friend of a friend has asked me if you'll go and play at their school fair. Right. And there's almost like an expectation that you would do that. That's actually the subject I thought you were bringing up before when you started talking about the charitable side of things. Uh, because as musicians, we all get asked to do stuff all the time for free for charities. Yeah. And how do you deal mm-hmm. with that? Because you can't go out and work for free all the time. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, you've also got to try and value yourself and make sure that people realize you're worth something. And there are people out there who try to use the charity card to get free gigs out of you, even when they're basically oh, sort of taking sh- the piss, you know? Sh- yes. Yeah. yeah. All of that. Absolutely. And, you know, I've got my solution for, for myself personally, and, and maybe this will change, but this is currently where I am, is because I've been involved with a lot of charity shows in the past and things. So I've, I've been in the middle of the whole thing, talking to the corporates and the underwriters and so on. And yeah. um, what I've learned from the big corporates is that they assign a budget to their charity output every year and they decide right. they decide each time what to put that towards. And obviously they put it towards multiple um, avenues. And then that's the end mm. that they cap their charity amount right. there. And I just thought that makes sense. If you just go, well, I'll do, you know, maybe five gigs a year or, you know what I mean? You just yep. one every two months. Yep. Yeah. Something like that. If you just say, I'm prepared to give this much of my time and this number of shows and then the rest yep. of the time we're running a business. Yeah. No, fair enough. I think that's a good, that's a good way to approach it too. Yeah. Speaking of running a business, I should probably um, run our business and talk about our sponsor. Go on then. <laughs> Our sponsor today is a charity. (laughs) Our sponsor is Stonefield Bases Charity. Um, They'll be giving one free base away with every listen of this episode. (laughs) You can't can't say that. Why not? That's not true. That's not going to happen. You're not going to get a base if you listen to this episode. But what you will do is get some knowledge. Knowledge. Okay, here's some knowledge. Stonefield Music is a New Zealand-based musical instrument maker producing unique handcraft bases that use responsibly sourced beautiful timbers innovative electronics, and a state-of-the-art tailpiece tuning system. Their innovative tuning system, combined with their neutral balance design, makes Stonefield basses more comfortable and ergonomic to play. Their top-of-the-line timbers and electronics deliver a classic tone with modern qualities. No matter what style of music you play, Stonefield allows you to craft your own sound with the latest in electric bass. Their website is www.stonefieldmusic.com. Okay, Danny, so um, thank you very much for taking care of the business side of things. Pleasure. And uh, speaking of someone who takes care of business, uh, Stephen Gallagher takes care of all kinds of business <laughs> in terms of writing scores. Yep. I don't know how to tie that in. <laughs> <laughs> it was worth a go. It was worth a shot. It's worth a shot. Yeah. So let's have a listen to this um, this amazing talk with Stephen Gallagher. And it actually was incredible. He's a, he's a really knowledgeable fella. I loved it. It was uh, awesome. Yeah. All right, let's listen. Now let's do this. Don't give up your day job. Out of shot here, there's actually somebody just for the shotgun. Just <laughs> <laughs> a lawyer. One of one of Peter Jackson's cronies. Yeah. So if the screen goes blank, <laughs> or or gets covered in brain matter, or yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. All right. So we we could start from the very beginning. Sure. Music. Why? Um. Oh yeah. Sure. Go. Uh, 
Well, I mean, did you did, were you did you start playing an instrument in an early age or learning music? No, in an early age. No, 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 I didn't. I started. I started really late. I started learning an instrument when I was, I think, thirteen. Uh, which, which you know, that's pretty late, right? I mean, uh, right, sure, yeah. Uh, and it was um, largely because my uncle at the time. Uh, came over to visit us one Christmas holidays, and he was a songwriter in Australia. Uh, he worked in advertising a lot as well, and he brought his guitar over, and you know there'd be family sing-alongs, and it was it was great. And then he said to my father, he said, "Oh, you should buy your kids some instruments because it's you know it's a good part of education, and everyone should learn how to play an instrument." Yeah. So they said, "Well, you know, would you be interested in an instrument?" And at the time, being young, right. Um, the instrument that I was really most fascinated with was like the synthesizer because having been like a kid and watching um, Duran Duran and like seriously when you're when I was a kid watching uh, like Nick Rhodes behind this bank of mysterious looking boxes with lights on them that made crazy sounds <laughs> yeah that seemed to be something pretty cool and like well that seems like an instrument that I'd be really interested to play um so I got a Casio tone, <laughs> which was awesome. And <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. started learning um, on the Casio tone. And uh, at that age, I wasn't really interested in anything but kind of rock or pop music. And um, joined a band when I was like 14 with, you know, your friends at school and just play songs that you sort of hear on the radio. Yep. That kind of morphed. I kept playing instruments through school and studied music at school. Now, you, I think... You studied um, with a, with my, one of my friend's mothers. Uh, do you know Kate Louise Elliott? Oh, man. You know yes, yeah. of course. Kate's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, went to school yeah. with Kate, and she was one of those people that you'd always look up to because, well, because <laughs> she was always on stage. <laughs> <laughs> but she yeah. was one of those people who, you know, could really do it all. Like, she was singing, she was acting, and when you saw her do her thing, it was like, oh, this is someone who goes to our school who's in within our age range. She's doing something that is amazing. Like her voice is incredible. Her acting mm. ability is clearly like great. And her mother, yeah, her mother, um, Marianne Elliot was, was yeah. One of, one of the music teachers. And really she was the one who, whether she meant to or not, um, kind of gave her students the opportunity to, think about music in a broader context in a wider context. And for right. me, that happened one day when I was, I think I was in synth form. Right. And so up until that point, I was in a covers band and with my, with my friends from school and we were like 16, 17 and we were playing in bars like three nights a week in, in yeah. Lower Hutt where we, we were at the time. And, um, the guitarist's dad worked for the police. So it was, um, we never had any trouble being underage in a bar playing while he was, you know, he was looking uh, after us. Uh, definitely opened our eyes to some things. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, um, so one day Marianne Elliott, Mrs. Elliott, um, we were sitting down in class and she picked out a cassette tape, remember those, <laughs> put it into the player and, sh and she turned around to us and said, look, what I'm about to play you, you might not think is music and I don't really think it's, you know, I, I don't really like it, but it's part of the syllabus and I have to play it. So I'm just warning you. So she pushes play and it was all music from the 20th century, but sort of the second half, like 
the second half, like from the late 40s, mid 50s, in fact, probably, yeah, the 40s, 50s and, and onward of um, contemporary classical or electronic composers. So people like Stockhausen, um, George Crumb, Jack Body, yeah. Varese, all of the stuff that I'd just never heard before. And prior to listening to that tape, music class consisted of studying Bach and Beethoven and Mozart. And then when I wasn't in class, I was listening to, you know, Duran Duran and NXS and um, The Cure and things like that. And this music, I still remember it sitting in class. And when I heard this piece, which I later found out was by a, a guy called George Crumb, blew my mind. I, I, I just, I felt like, and I, I know I don't mean to be kind of twee, but I felt like I was having an out-of-body experience. Yeah, okay. And um, the rest of the tape, like hearing Jack Body's pieces, hearing like Varese's ionization blew my mind. And um, what was the other piece that she played? Contact uh, by Stockhausen. It was right. like everything that um, he loved about, you know, being synthesizers, the sounds, the mystery, um, combined with this, I don't know, this emotional force. And this mm. this um, otherworldly intelligence behind it, or maybe it was just, uh, and uh, I don't know how do I describe it. Okay, here, here's another shot at it. When, when you're listening to a certain set or a certain you know type of music, and that's all you listen to, mm -hmm. anything that's outside of that sphere that you hear can be incredibly shocking. Yeah, yeah. Course. And that was definitely the case. But once I got over the shock and, and just wanted to know more about this music and, and, you know, it didn't seem to be of any kind of harmonic or rhythmic um, <laughs> structure that I'd, uh, or even narrative structure that I was familiar with. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, that's the very moment I was like, oh my God, that's what I want to do. If people are doing this, this is, and, and this is a thing you can do. I, I want to do this. Um, had had you already uh, had your ears already stood up to movie soundtracks at this point? Like had you? Ah, uh, um, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yes, Indiana Jones, Star Wars, all of the yeah, you know, yeah. the classics of the eighties, the Gremlins, Krull. Because um, I remember, like, when I was a kid, I was only exposed to like what was on the radio and like most kids. Yeah, and for me, it was movie soundtracks that opened my eyes yeah, to, you, to you, classical you, you and jazz, that. and you know. Which ones for you guys? Oh, Blade Runner. Yeah, Back um, to the Future. You know. <laughs> Back to the Future is awesome. Yeah. yeah, even the theme song to Knight Rider. Yeah, that haunted me when I was a kid. Oh, yes, yeah. actually, there was one song that haunted me as a kid as well, and I only just remembered it the other day. And it, and it's something kind of obscure, but they used to have like, way back in the eighties, they used to have this thing called Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew Mysteries. And I looked it up on the internet. I, I was I just remembered it the other day, and I looked it up, and the piece of music still really just like small ensemble, lots of woodwinds, and just kind of ew, creepy. And yeah, oh, right. The um the theme song to the TV show Incredible Hulk. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. It was it was yes. so sad. Yes. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Yes. And beautiful. And 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 the other yeah. one was Sapphire and Steel. Sapphire and Steel. Right. Yes, of course. That yeah. kind of oh, that brass, that English kind of brass through a plate reverb yeah <laughs> oh, oh my were goodness you, the, before the music were you describing was that you know with no sort of rhythm and rhythmic or harmonic structure that yeah. you've come across before is that the definition of, of through music or did they have a theme that they would return to or? um well in in george crumb's case and you know i only sort of really discovered this l sort of um after the fact but 
you know, he, he his thematic approach is not really thematic through kind of um, melodic or harmonic uh, means. His his thematic uh, ideas generally tend to be expressed in coloristic or or um, timbral gestures, so sounds. That's how he sort of. Um, that's I guess you know if you wanted to say his his thematic through line in music that that that's what it appears to be to me like just yeah groups of instruments or, or groups of sounds um rather than sort of specific melodies or or specific rhythms or or, or harmony um but you know this cassette tape but going back to sim form or whatever it was we only heard like you know very small snippets of each piece so I didn't I didn't get to sort of listen to those things until I went into uh, music school right after that and uh even even after hearing that music and um you know thinking oh this is what I want to do it was really kind of my my mother said to me you like synthesizers I have a friend who's got a friend who likes synthesizers who lectures at music school at, at, in, in Victoria do you want to go and talk to him about synthesizers <laughs> <laughs> so I said yeah sure great and uh, it was Ross Harris right and uh okay. <laughs> so I, I turned up to university and there's Ross and he's sitting in uh what was called ems1 then with you know like a roland modular synthesizer a fairlight cmi3 um a bunch of other samplers and rack gear tape machine and he's just like going oh <laughs> as a kid i was just sitting around going oh my god um how do i get here and that was a really important moment because you know ross one of new zealand's finest composers was never patronizing at all and he was just sitting down and and we were just having a discussion about synthesizers which he he loves as well but he mm. was the first person to help me connect the idea that loving rock music and pop music and synthesizers isn't necessarily mutually exclusive from studying contemporary classical music in fact there's right. there's a, a large subset of, of ideas and and um, approaches there and that it's valid to like that type of music and write contemporary classical music. They're not, they're not sort of worlds apart. He was the first yeah. person to sort of say, it's not, you know, you just have to forget that, you know, if you do one, you can't do the other, you can do them both. Mm. <clears throat> Sounds right, like right. A, a small thing, but at the time it was huge, you know? And so, um, and that's, that's what started me off studying at, um, at Victoria, studying composition. And that, that's kind of um, the opposite of what, you, what people, are, well, at least what I would believe is that there's a lot of snobbery in, contemporary classical music and and that pop and rock and that they don't get a look in yeah i th I think sometimes that i mean um i think sometimes there can be but i think that that's on both sides i don't think snobbery sure of course yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 but definitely i mean the experience of studying music with with jack body with um ross harris with john pasathis was was amazing and they they were curious about you know they were they were open to you know music outside their immediate kind of um i don't know spheres outside classical music outside world music they were interested in pop and rock and sounds and and it was just like a it was such an incredible experience that that even just the first year um being opened up to music from all over the planet like uh pearlfishes singing in the black sea or um music concrete from 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 france and just stuff that blew your mind like every day you'd be turning up listening to to music and jack body especially i remember as a lecturer was pretty incredible he had this ability 
It was almost like he was able to pick up a piece of music or hold it out in front of you like this and, and hold it up and go, well, look, this piece by, you know, I don't know, Stravinsky here. Well, this is it. This is interesting. What we're, oh, 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 look at this. Did you see this? This part, this is amazing. <laughs> and it's almost like he was able to hold it up as a 3D object in front of you, turn it over, inspect it, and find out what made it magical, what made it special. Right. Yeah. Okay. And that, that's, a, that's a pretty incredible talent. You know, um, mm. and he was a, yeah, he was a great teacher, but everybody there was a, was a fantastic lecture and it was a, it was a great place to learn a lot of things. And that's also where, yeah, film soundtracks started becoming more of a, of an obsession. And, um, and how, how, how did you make sense of that ambition given that New Zealand's association with the movie industry hadn't quite exploded yet? Oh, that's a great question. Well, um, I think the, the absolute direct link to that was, before I went to university, one of the films that I saw that blew me away in a lot of, in, in, in like many, many levels, but especially the soundtrack, was a film called Vigil, and Vincent Ward directed it, and Jack right. Body wrote the score. Right. And, um, and he, was, he was a lecturer, and it was like, oh, well, here's somebody who's doing it, and, you know, we talk about it a little bit, and I could ask him questions about it, and so that, that seemed immediately to be... You know, a way, a way into it, or, or there's a connection. There. Yeah, a connection, definitely. Yeah. And when John Pasatis arrived at the New Zealand Music School, he was, he was interested in film too, and so all of a sudden it was, you know, something that uh, wasn't so out of reach. It was like, right, okay, it's it's um, it's been sort of validated. The interest in it has been validated by two people I really respect and two people who have had experience doing it. So doesn't John Pathasis, um lecture in the film scoring um, at, at Victoria? But when did that become part of the curriculum there, or the offering there, well, film scoring specifically? Good question. I, well, I'd guess I would say four to five years ago, but that's a guess. Right? Yeah, it hasn't been long, has it? No, it hasn't hasn't been long at all. But it's been um, right. really interesting to see the students coming out of there and what they're capable of doing. And at the moment. Victoria is in its first year of its um, creative master's program. And uh, one of the things they are offering their students is internships with people working in, you know, in, in the fields that students are pursuing. So in my case, uh, I had an intern who was interested in com composing for film and music editing. And I've never had an intern before in my life. And it was, um, it was an amazing experience, actually. And just gleaning what this student has learned in the course it's really impressive both technically and in, in terms of storytelling and, and writing for 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 dramatic purpose mm. um i'm very impressed with the right. people coming out here so far so do you mm. think in the future this is going to lead to because i mean we do we make films here in, yeah. in, in new zealand yeah from um you know pre-production right up to production post-production obviously with um peter jackson's we probably make crew. more than a lot of the public realize eh? yeah but <laughs> yeah. There's, there's the one thing that we don't do so much of and that's actually film scoring and recording orchestra here yeah for, for films that yeah what's it going to take to keep that that work here as well that's a good question i mean now we, we've got a world-class orchestra we've got an amazing orchestra we've got facilities to do it yeah yeah we do i mean we don't have a at the moment uh as I speak, we don't have a fully equipped studio that, you know, you can just put the orchestra into and go, let's roll. It, you, it does take right. some setup and some, um, you know, bumping some equipment in. So, but it's not far off. Uh, right. yeah. okay. And in terms of what it takes to keep that going, 
That is a really good question. I think it has to be uh, it has to be cost effective, firstly, because you know it does cost money to record great players. Sure. Because uh, you know you're you're paying for quality. Um, yeah. And I think how do I put it? Um, I think the best endorsement that 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 you could ever have was when we did we were working on the second Hobbit movie and we had Conrad Pope who's a, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a legendary orchestrator and composer for film, come down and orchestrate and conduct the NZSO. I mean, he was pretty pretty blown away by them. Of course. And they were pretty blown away by him too. It was like a love thing. So uh, the end result, what he achieved and what we were able to record with that orchestra was was really impressive. And um, I just think it's, it's, um, it's keying more people in to the idea that, one, there is an orchestra here of, of, of world class. Um, and secondly, scores are able to be done here to a high, uh, quality and, um, with a crew, with a bunch of people who really know what they're doing. Yeah. The amount of time, you know, you're overseas or in Europe or in America and people are like, oh, do you have an orchestra? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the one challenge, one of the many challenges we do face is that our orchestra, the NZSO, um, they're a national ensemble, right? So their mandate is to serve the country and um, to be a an orchestra for for the country, and this means that they have a pretty busy schedule, you know, of yeah. playing up and down um, uh, the country and and beyond. And so the one challenge I guess we face is finding gaps in their schedule where a film has a gap, and or a film you know specifically wants to record a a, a, a large ensemble, and that's. Yeah, I don't know how we get around that, but that's... Um... Well, if the industry picked up, would there be room in the market for for more orchestras, for another orchestra? Yeah, look, I I, I, I imagine so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Even maybe maybe one that's more designed for this purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at, um, if you look at London in, 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 you know, broad general terms, right, one of the great things about recording there is that you've got people who play with the LSO, the LPO, and the LMO, right? So three... Mm pretty amazing ensembles and that's that's only three there's more than that and they're all kick ass players and they're kick ass players because when they're not doing film scoring or sampling work or anything like that they're playing out in orchestras operas they're playing all the time and uh you can just call in an orchestra made up from different you know members of of uh of each ensemble and you're still guaranteed to get a great sound and that's because those musicians are working musicians every single day either if they're not doing film scores they're out doing concerts or they're on tour and um the level of musicianship there is just incredible and Mm. there's no reason that can't happen here it's just that um the opportunities for musicians to play out to the degree that they do in london is is just you know not as not as um yeah that's right uh not as should we say bountiful Mm. Mm. but still i mean you know like the the orchestras here the nzso i mean they're incredible. I mean, the wind section alone, they just wipe the, f- they're fucking amazing, you know? Mm. <laughs> and look, uh, I mean, the, 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 the APO, um, the Wellington orchestra, there's, there's ensembles around that, that, uh, you know, I, th- I think to, to ask, to answer your question before that, yeah, there's the, the player players and the talent. It's just, um, making that connection and, and getting the opportunities for those ensembles to, 
to try that out, you know, to get. Right, yeah. And there are even, um, you know, you're hearing stories of these grassroots uh, youth orchestras coming, like, very, I mean, you're young orchestras like Sistema, the program um, in South Auckland here. Yep. That's, yeah. Now there's one in um, Whangarei and there's one in Hamilton, I believe, as well. That if you look at the the model in Venezuela, that they've got 80 youth orchestras because of that program. That's awesome. You know? So um, that may very well start, you may in, in the next sort of 10, 15, 20 years, see that flourish here. Yeah. We've got an abundance of players who can join these ensembles. Totally. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and feed into them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's a great experience. I mean, like we're, I've worked with members of the NZSO on like big projects and smaller projects and, and their musicianship is just kick ass. And to see them take on, you know, like interns and, and teach others and uh, work with younger musicians is really inspiring. Mm. I think that idea of youth orchestras being able to sit in with the NZSO or just, you know, uh, spend some time with them playing on, on scoring dates, which more, more of that, yeah, yeah. more of that. Top notch. I mean, so, I, know, I know the options in New Zealand when, in regards to things like gigging are, are limited, yeah. but how much do, of it do you think comes down to ha- having the right mindset, like a global mindset or, or allowing yourself to think and dream big? Because one of the sort of theories that I'm working on in my thoughts is that um, a lot of the standout New Zealanders who have really competed on the international stage seem to have just thought globally from the start. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I, I've never met Peter Jackson, but I'm I'm sort of under the impression that right from the start, he was planning on being an, an international director. Right, right. Do you support that idea? Oh, of course. I think so as well. I mean, I think um, the watching the NZSO play on, you know, a number of dates, especially on the Hobbit recording s- sessions, and just seeing, you know, a bunch of people involved in the in the NZSO just light up, or you know, um, you just saw their eyes light up, and then you could just see the 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 wheels turning over in their brains, going, "We can do this, right?" And right, and, you know, just sort of thing. <laughs> okay, well, this is possible. How do we how do we take it further? How do we move on from here and ensure that the NZSO keeps doing score um, recording? um at a national and international level so i think your comment about dreaming big absolutely yep and was that was was that you when you were you know 17 18 and coming to to realize that this music was possible um that's a good question i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i think probably in some respects yes i i don't um i remember sort of thinking or getting or, or twigging uh during music school uh I, I i met some people um who were across the road from music school at, at drama school or theater school or the theater and film department and i got involved with a couple of them doing some productions and that opportunity to provide music for dramatic purpose so the music wasn't really the thing that mm. was the center of attention it was supporting the dramatic storytelling the dramatic action on stage that was a big turning point because when you're at you know music school it's all about the music itself that's the center stage you're writing for the music it's it's and it doesn't serve anything else other than you know the the fact it's serving itself (laughs) that's terrible (laughs) isn't it uh the end result is basically you know this piece of music and it's it's um whereas working in the theater department it was like you could write you know, a brilliant piece of music that could stand up on its own feet without anything else happening. But if it didn't mm. work for the story or if it didn't work for the drama and it got in the way of the storytelling, then it was, you know, 
uh, yeah. not fulfilling its role. And that was, that was a big learning curve for me. And I, I got involved in a lot of theater after that, because I mean, I, I just loved the collaboration part of it. Right. And also from, because I was just starting out, you know, um, and I still think this today, really, if you're going in to do theater, you're going to get a lot more creative input than you would if you were just starting out on a film or in a, on a film crew. Um, and it was really a really nice environment to try things out, a really nice environment to fall on your face and completely, you know, fail <laughs> <laughs> and learn. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, and the other thing I was, yeah, the other thing I was doing through university was, um, was theater sports. Right. Okay. Which was actually another thing. Again, the music has to serve the, the scene. It has to, um, has to help the storytelling and you've got to be kind of quick on your feet and thinking almost two steps ahead of, um, of what's going on in front of you on stage. Yeah. That, that was a great skill set to sort of, um, develop over the years of working with the, with, uh, a group called the improvisers in Wellington. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense because comedy has so much in common with music. Yeah. With pacing and space and you timing. Know, timing. Yeah. yeah. I, w- I do want to get back to the Hobbit and, and the Ed Sheeran um, story because oh, uh, sure. uh, it's a bit of a um, sort of folklore type thing. But before we do that, did you? how did you know that there was even a thing called a music editor and how did you learn that skill? Oh, I didn't I didn't know there was anything such thing as a music editor. I, I, um, uh, after university, after being in a band for a while, I was uh, assistant composer to a guy called Dave Long who's like... Oh, of course. Legend. I don't want to build him up to be too much. But like, <laughs> he wouldn't want you to either. Greatest guy okay, in the universe. Would. So, you know, yeah. uh, I hope I'm not overselling him. But yeah, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who love Dave Long and those who haven't met him yet. He's <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I was um, uh, assistant composer for him and we were working uh, on a show, TV series for the Gibson Group. And we were coming up to the end of the series and uh, there was a position opening up in their sound team. Uh, they needed a new sound assistant because I didn't have anything else coming up. I thought, oh, well, that sounds like an interesting thing to do. So I jumped into the sound team um, with a guy called Dayton Lechner and a guy called Mike Hopkins. And Mike Hopkins was um, one of the sound supervisors on the Lord of the Rings. And um, he and Dayton both taught me a great deal about sound post, uh, working with... Um, I think it was cutting Atmos and then I was helping out on the dialogue side of things. And then after that, I got a job as a dialogue editor on a, on a couple of TV shows. And I knew that there was a guy called Chris Ward working for Peter Jackson, or he'd been working on the, um, on the Lord of the Rings and King Kong. And, um, I, I'd met him because he was also a sound designer in theater and his sound design, his sound designs were all, always the most incredible things you'd hear in the theater in Wellington. And, um, I, I met him. He was a really cool guy. And he was saying, Oh, you know, I'm starting work out at, um, uh, out on this film called Lord of the Rings. So I kept ringing him up and kept bugging him really just saying, Oh, you know, <laughs> I'd love to come out and work and see how you work. And at that time I thought I'd just like, I'd, I'd maybe get work as a dialogue editor out yep. in, um, a lot of work on that film for dialogue editors. <laughs> it was all ADR, right? Oh man, I actually I don't I didn't work on a lot of the ranks, but I imagine oh, a lot right. of it was. Um, yeah, 
and one day i don't know chris chris was like he was always great right and then he was like oh look man i don't have anything for you at the moment and and then one day i remember i don't know it was like 2008 he called me and he said hey what are you doing and i was like i'm standing in a car park and he's like well um <laughs> hey i'm working on something i'm working on a film and we're working with a musician um, who I think you know a lot about and who I know you're a fan of, and we need someone to put together a, a temp score. Do you think you'd be interested in doing it? I was like, no, you know, I've never done anything like that before. I was like, um, yeah, um, who's the musician? He was like, oh, it's Brian Eno. And I was like, yep, <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've heard of that guy. Yeah. yeah. And I was, you know, so um, I came over to watch the, the the first cut of the film which of, of a film called the lovely bones which was like at that time i think it was close to four hours long wow Fuck. <laughs> oh man it was amazing i remember just like getting to the end of it and just going was that just the first edit yeah or... i think it was the first edit first cut right. and um he said oh look they want brian Eno to score it but um they want him they want to tr like he's gonna send some new music down and they want you to cut it in and i was like what really <laughs> um i was like great okay cool um so next thing i know i'm in a room just cutting like listening through to these new things that brian Eno's output you know somebody who i've kind of like worshipped from a distance for years i was just going i can't yeah. actually believe this is happening i didn't even know this job existed and if i'd known i would have paid you to let me do it <laughs> so had brian had brian Eno uh just sent you lots of music with no particular idea about where it would go in the movie or had he, had he written loosely for scenes he didn't want to see any cuts of the film oh he want he read the book and then yeah. he had some discussions with peter and fran and then got some artwork sent over to him so he could look at that wow and he took some friends um away for a weekend and they just set up and started making music and they sent that that stuff to us just saying hey look these are some rough ideas that we've come up with can you just you know try them out and they were quite beautiful quite abstract sort of electronic uh and things that sort of sounded like they balanced between electronic and acoustic forgive me i've got to f remember who those other two musicians were one of them was um uh it'll come to me look I'll, I'll i'll sneakily look it up on my phone while i'm uh <laughs> um we can edit this part in yeah uh, yeah we'll edit this part in and edit <laughs> so listening to this stuff um you know it was incredible he also said i oh, go through my older albums and if there's anything that works there feel free to use that so um one piece of music um, Peter and Fram really wanted to use was The Big Ship, which is from Another Green World. Um, so that piece of music was at a fairly pivotal scene in the movie. Um, and the rest was... What was the piece? One of the pieces that opens the film was from Music for Airports. And those were the two sort of um, pieces of um, that were kind of locked. And from there, it was just basically populating the film with a mixture of old, you know, his, his older material and the new stuff that he was making. And um, it was like, it was the greatest thing ever. It was fantastic. And I, I got to yeah. work with Fran um, uh, on that. And she's, I mean, she's amazing. She's, uh, she's got one of the best ears for melody, for music and best memories for things. It's astounding. And working with her, she, her 
It's interesting. I think both of them, both Peter and Fran would, I think I've heard Peter say this once that he said, I don't really know much about music. I think that's kind of a disservice to him because he knows a lot about music. He knows a lot about how music needs to serve the film that he's working on, or he knows how it right. needs to work dramatically. And being able to work with, with Fran on, um, on putting that temp score together, it was incredible. Like her insights into how the music should serve or how the music could work with the dialogue or, or, or the action unfolding was just really inspirational and a real, yeah, just a really generous learning period. Mm. Didn't you also write additional score for that film? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of the temp, we sent the temp off and, and, and Brian was really, start, he was really happy with it. Um, and he wrote on a really nice note and um, it was, yeah, it was, it was cool. Um, very, very happy. Um, and then uh, the film got edited. Um, there was more music added and uh, he kept making things. Um, and then we, I think for one scene, we got Victoria Kelly in to arrange some strings for, for one of his pieces. And oh, okay. I mean, yeah, Victoria's amazing, you know. She is, yeah. She's a great, great person. Uh, yeah, she's brilliant. Yeah. Another one of those those brilliant people, you know, you meet. Yeah, totally. Once in a lifetime. Oh, yeah, I've actually, um, when I was in a band, um, she arranged some strings for us, and I've worked with her on a couple of times before that, and just to, to have her down on the Lovely Bones was just so cool. I actually have to say, when I found awesome. out she she started working for opera, I was really upset because <laughs> I was like, well, not 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 because she was working for opera, because I mean, I think that is fantastic that she is. Just that she wasn't going to be writing scores. Yeah, right. I rang her up. I was just like, I was like, I don't know how to say this. I don't, I don't, you know. I feel one. I'm very glad that you have this job because I think it's opera. Very lucky to have you. But on a purely selfish level, <laughs> how did you do this? <laughs> Surely she's still writing though, right? Oh yeah, I think she is. I mean, I think the last score that I saw of hers before she... Oh, actually, no, I just remember walking into a mix uh, on in Park Road when they were mixing her score to Under the Mountain. Under the Mountain, yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, I mean, oh my goodness, that was just incredible. It was like standing there with my mouth agape just going... <laughs> So there seems to be so much emotion in the music that you make. I find it incredibly moving to listen to. I really love it. And um, I'm curious to know, do you bear your soul? You know, I mean, does this come from your life, from your past? And do you believe in that theory that good art comes from suffering? Yeah, to a degree I do. I mean, um, I don't know. I, I always think it's a good way to process things. And I always think that you draw on. Well, let me start. I mean, as, as, as human beings, right? We may not all understand what a quaver or a crotcher is. Yeah. We may not all understand the technical language of music, but we understand emotion, right? And that's what we react to generally first. Right. And um, I think that it's a great way to process emotion. Um, I don't know. Someone said something to me a lot, and, and it kind of sounds like a bit of a, bit of a, bit of a wank, but here we go. <laughs> I used to go and visit, occasionally I used to go and visit Douglas Lilburn when he was still alive at his house. And um, he, he was a funny guy. <laughs> um, and he said, oh, we were talking and he was like, so where did you grow up? And I was like, well, you know, I, I spent some time in Japan when I was a kid. And he's like, oh, that explains it. And I was like, what explains what? <laughs> 
And he's like, you, you, you love, you, you're interested, you're interested in, in things like George Crumb, those sounds, those things that, that the otherworldly sound of, of, of Stockhausen, all those things that you love that made you want to do music. That's where yeah. it comes from. It comes from your time there because you know, <laughs> I was like, I'd never really thought about that, but uh, maybe he had a point. I don't, I don't know. Um, but I don't know. I'm, 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 um, I'm not, if I'm, if I'm writing for film, it's, it's all about what's going to serve the, what the director or the producer or whoever's giving me the you know instructions about what they want for their film. It's all about trying to serve that. And, um, but that, that's more a headspace thing, isn't it? But there's something underneath that. that yeah. Well, the, the, absolutely. So, so, um, yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, in terms of suffering, I don't, I don't know. I'm, 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 uh, I, I don't suffer very often. I mean, I suffer from, you know, insecurities and, and coffee addiction sure. and all the things that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you have to put yourself in a headspace, like you said. I really do. And I think that um, drawing on uh, things that have happened to you in your life, whether they're good or whether they're bad, um, that that that's a really powerful kind of um, uh, resource, if you want to call it that. Um, and sometimes getting into that headspace can be fairly intense, right? Yeah. And, and also very healing. Yeah, sometimes, totally, absolutely. I mean, we've talked about this bit on previous episodes. Why, as humans, are we so interested in music and movies and things, which is sort of all playing pretend in, in many ways. Yeah. But we, we're, we're so invested in it. We, we, we love what we love. We, we do. Why, why is that? We love stories. Yeah. We totally love stories. And That's right. Um, you know, uh, if you if we talk, well, we're talking about music and storytelling. I mean, that's yep. that's gone back. I mean, there's recorded instances in human history of the Greeks, you know, having music with their uh, with their theater. It probably happened way before that as well. Um, and uh, if we bring it up to date now, film is a fairly young art form, but it's a, another manifestation of people telling stories. And right, um, music has kind of come through that <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, you know when I've, I've said this before on this podcast and, and well, i think so i think i've said it here but somewhere um because i read it you know when i was studying film music um myself how and it's so true that you you take a piece of film and a piece of music and you you sort of alluded to it earlier when you're talking about theater yeah the, the two things can stand alone you know on their own yes but you bring them together and that creates something otherworldly like you said some magic happens Ma- yeah alchemy magic right i mean yeah. and and you never know what's going to work and what's not until you try it out ja- right. go, going back to jack body one of the coolest things he did uh in once in class i think it was studying honors with him and he said okay so you're interested in film and film film music here's a camera i want you to go and make a short film then i want you to bring the short film back and i want you to make four different soundtracks for the same film and that was like one of the best exercises ever because you know being familiar with what you shot and trying different musical approaches just brought out different things and made you as a viewer interpret things differently and you were right. absolutely aware of the power that the music had to shift your focus or shift the intent of of the story or or the sequence of images you were you were showing. And were the four ideas quite different to each other? Yeah, absolutely, totally. Yep, right. absolutely. Um, right. Different instruments, different approach. You know. Uh, yeah. How, how do you decide on what that sort of I guess timbral framework or, or the palette will be when you're looking at a scene or a? That's a really good question. A really good question. If um, we take a, the a score that I finished last year and just just uh, got released. It's a film called Human Traces, and it's just it's just had a, a pretty good run at um, in Toronto. The director Nick Gorman 
he he said this great thing. I mean, it's it's a story about three people on an island and um, they're growing paranoia. Uh, and it's a, a film that tells us the same story, but from three different points of view. So right. as an audience, you're getting more information or different information from each person's particular take on, on, on the story. And he said, look, um, he said, I want the music in this film to do two things. I want one, I want it to be incom- uncomfortable and intimate. And secondly, I want the music to sound like it was made with instruments that were abandoned on this island by, you know, people in the 40s and that right. we've come along and we've discovered these instruments and that's what's making the sound. And and that as a as a very kind of vivid and powerful yeah. um, uh, set of ideas to, to sort of formulate from right. was, was great. So I think sometimes... Um, you get those great sort of suggestions from from people who you're working with, um, and other times it's it's equally like what they don't like. You know, like I think I was working with someone recently who was like, "I don't like brass." <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, and and timbre things are. Um, I think that's that's my favorite part of it. You know, finding the sounds that um, uh, that you're going to populate your your score with, and. Um, and are there ever moments where you where you just are completely stumped? Yeah, totally, absolutely, all the time. And do do you have rituals to to get the motors going? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think uh, ideally, you know, in an ideal world, you'd, you'd start the process kind of early and have some playing round time. That's yeah. something that that um, that Dave Long always used to do, I and mean, he taught me before you start writing, just some play time, just to get used to, or just try some sounds, try some ideas and figure out what it is you kind of want to say before you start writing. Right. And if you've got the luxury to do that, that's like, that's the best time. Um, but if you don't, yeah, then things can be, uh, things can be interesting. I just finished this was a short film for a Canadian, is she Canadian? No, I think she's American, but she lives in London, um, a director. And, she was talking about kind of uh, the music that she wanted in her film. And often there's that, there's that time where you're talking with somebody you've never worked with before and you're trying to figure out what they like and what they don't and what they mean when they say something. Yeah, well, what's the language they're yeah. using. Yeah, and the terms of reference, you know. So when they yeah. say something like guitar drone, I mean, you know, that's fairly, we all have our ideas about what that is or, mm. that, you know, or, or what was the word she used? I think she said something like post-rock. Right. And then she sent me some reference tracks to listen to and I was like, Oh, okay. I think, I think I know what you mean. And then I sent her back kind of what I thought she wanted. And, and her note was like, Oh, what are all these zany sounds? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, and and that's the thing. Like, um, it's her film. The music is, is I'm, I'm trying to make the music that, that she wants to serve her story. Mm-hmm. And it's up to me at that point to go, well, what, what do you mean by zany? Um, and I, you know, it's, it's, it would be easy to take that person and go, what you, zany, what are you? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but uh, it, it's that thing where finding out those terms of reference, what people mean. So, um, yeah, I want less velvet cape and more leather pants. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of, yeah. yeah. I, I want more angst and less polka dots. It's, you know, it's, yeah. um, and, and yeah. that's a really important thing, you know, that having, having that relationship with a director where you can say, because it, it, it still surprises me even now 
the number of people I'm lucky enough to work with who, who come in and the, one of the first things they say is, oh, look, I don't really know much about music. And, you know, that, then that's, there's that conversation that, you, that I love having and, and just saying, look, you don't, you don't need to know the technical, you know, um, terminology, terminology or the details yeah. about that. You just need to know, I mean, a great place for us to start off with is emotions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and look, if if any time you say I want the music to be more autumnal or more stripy, that's great. <laughs> and it's just up to me to find out what that means. But it's a very valid thing for you to say and a great way to communicate. And right. and then and then, you know, you've got to shift your language or terms of reference for each stage of the of the of the scoring, you know. So when you're working with a director, it's fine to talk about stripy and autumnal, but and and not talk about the technical you know technical mechanics of music but if yeah. you try and get in front of an orchestra or musicians and talk about uh, can you just play it more autumnal that that you know <laughs> that's not going to go so well. yeah they need to know exactly what you're talking totally. about totally absolutely and um there have been occasions in the past where I've had people say things like that to me like I don't know anything about music yeah and I've I've pointed out to them well you actually do because you spent your whole life listening to music exactly you know you may you may just not quite know the language um, yeah, but and I, and I remember a, a, a musician I was working with many years ago who said um, about I can't remember what it was about, but it was about something to do with the show, and and they said oh, it doesn't matter. They won't. The, the audience mostly are unmusical anyway. It doesn't matter. They, they won't notice. <laughs> and I said I said the worst thing you can do is patronize your audience. Oh, you know, totally. and, and it's the same way that um, I don't know how to make movies personally, but I know when a movie's good, and I'm at, you know in my opinion, and I know when it's I can feel when it's B grade. And if you say, "How would you define the difference between a good movie and a B grade movie?" I have no idea. Lighting, <laughs> lighting, <laughs> but but I, I, I have no idea, you know. And yeah. and I don't I don't need to know to enjoy it or to be able to perceive that. I I, mm. I agree with you, I, and I also mm. think that um, you know, building on what you say, is that we're talking about people more so than ever now uh by just being you know just by hanging around doing your going through your daily life in 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 most cities in the world most mm. towns in the world you're going to be exposed to music you're going to be exposed to some form of visual media right so right. whether you say whether you think you know about film or you know about music or not you're versed in it because yes. there's just virtually no way to escape it <laughs> that's mm. right mm. so you are fluent in it or you you're familiar with the language and I still, I still come back to, to, to that idea of talking about things and emotions, you know, uh, especially music. It's, it's just a really, um, whether it's as, as, as straightforward as going, hey, I want this to be a very sad music piece here and I mm. want this to be very, very happy. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a, really, uh, a really good way to engage with what it is that your director or producer wants you to do to serve their film. Right. Yeah, and the, the narrative structure of film and film music that 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 serves that structure is based on conventions. People, without knowing the, like you say, the machinations behind it, they'll know that or they'll feel uh, a sad or a, or a you know a, a, a an onerous or threatening um, yeah. soundscape, but not know. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and also, you know, going going um, building on that, there's, there's a whole lot of. Uh, tenets of, of of modern film language um and techniques that films developed over the last hundred or so years that we, that we just take for granted now and um you know if, if you said to somebody how does a montage work 
you know, if you think about it, it's just like a, a series of, and this is speaking in broad terms, it's a series of kind of almost unrelated jarring shots Yeah. Uh, that, you know, maybe show a passing of time in a condensed manner. Development. Development, yeah. yeah. And that's something, I mean, that's, that's a point where music can really kind of help uh, consolidate and... Yeah, it knits it together, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, mm. It's just like that song out of Team America, the montage. It's like that's <laughs> America. I was, I was just thinking about that. Oh, I did. I did. I had, I had a lecture. I had a guest, uh, a lecture at Massey, and um, I was talking about functions of of uh, music and film. And I was like, I have to talk about montage. And I was like, <laughs> I, I have to play that because that's just like the perfect summation of what a montage <laughs> it just is. Just sums it up. It sums yeah. it up perfectly. <laughs> If you think about it, you take them. Uh, every eighties movie had a montage in it, right? Yeah, yeah. And you take out the soundtrack, and you've just got these random cuts. Yes. You'd be like, what be the bizarre. fuck like, is going what is on this? here? Be like a Did he just? Trip. How come suddenly his muscles are bigger? And uh, yeah, no. totally. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's um, and we are, and as you say, people are. You've got to give people credit, um, for being fluent in a number of those tenets in which film and music operate modern now you mentioned modern film music so oh, yeah. you started this this part this conversation and i'm going to carry it on uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to blame it on you if it goes south okay. all right let's do it um what do you think about uh, there's no other way to put it the the modern film soundtrack the modern film soundtrack so you mentioned uh indiana jones and yeah. star wars obviously yeah. the pinnacle of of the, of the blockbuster in those days and also the best film music that's ever been made. John Williams, man, really. John he's Williams, amazing. you can't go past him, right? Oh, he's incredible. I had the very fortunate experience once of meeting uh, one of John's music editors, Ramiro Belgra, and he showed me, um, you know, those long uh, legends that you've heard about through Hollywood music circles about John Williams writing everything down on like eight staves? Yes, right, on pencil. Yeah, he took yeah. out some of John Williams' score written on eight stays and is like, look at that. And I was looking at it going, oh, wow. this is like the holy grail. And I'm looking at it holding in my hands just going, I, uh, everything's there. Everything in yeah. eight staves, everything is there. It's extraordinary. Right. It's beautiful. And it's just like, yeah. this should be hung up on the wall, man. It's yeah. like, <laughs> so, yes, okay. So, sorry, I interrupted you. You were talking about John Williams? Well, we were talking about, but in terms of... Is it okay? I'll say my opinion is that a lot of film music this, these days is more um, shit house. It's not. Well, it's not thematic. <laughs> it's more. Yeah, it's just basically a bunch of sounds thrown together All right. in the background. Now, and, and I'm not yeah. necessarily asking you to you to agree with that or not. But yeah, are you of the opinion uh, that theme thematic kind of score is? non-existent almost or is it still there is it happening yeah i absolutely think it's still there i think i think there's a maybe a trend away from it or there has been a trend away from it for a little while more sound design than 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 score right uh there's there's definitely some proponents of that absolutely um but then you you have things that i mean uh, have you seen um get out no i've heard great things about it though that score is amazing that score is amazing and and um the composer whose name I know embarrassingly actually this is the great thing about Facebook now you go and see a film whose soundtrack you like you can find the guy on or the girl on Facebook write to them and just go that was fucking awesome thank you and sometimes <laughs> yeah, right. they write back and sometimes they just tell you to go away but that's okay <laughs> that was a great score I thought um, I just uh, one of the films we finished earlier on in the year was a film called Wolf Warrior 2 um, and the composer's name was Joe Trapanese, and he again a beautiful, strong thematic uh, score, which did 
blend in many kind of modern electronic sound elements, but still amazing writing. Um, what was the other one I was watching the other day, which blew me away uh, thematically? I mean, I get what you're saying, right? Film scoring mm. has changed. And and yeah, absolutely has. Um, and there is a lot of... Uh, a lot of scores out there that are on the face of things perhaps compo- composed up of, of, of disparate sounds. Um, is this a change in the business behind the music? Potentially. I, I really don't know. I mean, I think uh, maybe it's also a change in the technology available. Right. And everybody's searching for, you know, new sounds, things that people have uh, have, have not heard before. I mean, there's still people out there writing, like, like you know, Johnny Greenwood's score writing is... I mean, oh yeah, that's amazing. That's a, have you? Is that the uh, film talk? Uh, no, body talk. Yeah, no. I mean, I was. I was meaning like there will be blood and. Um, oh yes, of course. Oh, yeah. What was the other one? I just recently saw him do. Is it the master? Um, it'll come to me. Sorry, I'm a bit vague, but I think it, it's changing, and I think. Mm. Um, but I, I still think there are scores out there that are you know do thematic things, but are still doing them on their own terms and. I mean, I'd look at something like Nocturnal Animals. I'd look at Michael Giacchino's score for Zootopia, which was amazing. Like Thomas Newman's uh, scores for... That Spielberg film he did the score for, Bridge of Spies, was pretty extraordinary, I thought. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, lovely. Great movie. I mean, there there are composers out there still, you know... Blending those two worlds, those kind of sound design and and uh, more kind of traditional um, scoring approaches, very successfully. I mean, I do hear mm-hmm. you. There are there are some films that sound like a bunch of guys sat down with some modular synthesizers and then handed off to a music editor to put it together. But yeah. I mean, I guess the question I have is that does it matter if it, if it serves the film? Well, that's true. The way yeah. that the director yeah. or producer or whoever's was giving the instructions. Do you think Giacchino is the heir apparent to John Williams? Oh, that's a big call. He's done some really good things. And, and I, I mean, if I was going to answer that question, I guess I would base it off the Star Wars scores that the two of them have done. And I think that's probably an unfair comparison. Um, mm. I think, I don't know, I, I wonder, uh, I wonder about people who work in, in as, as A-list Hollywood composers, whether you can ever escape the shadow of John Williams because, you know, he's such an yeah. undeniable uh, influence on, on film. Uh I don't know. I don't. I don't think I'm qualified to, to answer that question. <laughs> He's certainly a great composer. I mean, yeah. I mean, the Zootopia soundtrack alone. My goodness, beautiful stuff. I mean, I'm interested. What What was the last film uh, that both of you saw? Uh, for me, it was um, where the one that I saw that made me go, "Yes, it feels like um, themes are coming back into film." Was surprisingly the um, the cowboy one that Seth. Um, Oh, that's a great 12 movie. A million ways to die in the West or something around. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or a million ways yeah. to die in the West. Yeah. And that had great um, you know, great themes and yeah. new, exciting music for me. I was like, yeah, now suddenly it sounds like we're moving back from going away from soundscapes to theme again. Yeah, okay. Which was cool. You know? Yeah. And that was a few years ago. And now I guess. That that's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you only just watched I've, it recently. It was on television and I oh, right. and I don't I don't normally watch TV. Yeah. But we flicked it on one night because Netflix was down. Oh and it was and uh Bloody and there it was. Yeah. <laughs> Damn you Netflix. <laughs> what about you? Uh, I, I actually genuinely can't remember. Um, I feel like we watched something a few days ago, but it's gone completely out of my head. Okay. Yeah. Um 
But I've been um, particularly into a lot of series, uh, like that series that um, Jason Bateman made. What was it called again? Arrested Development? <laughs> no, oh, no, Ozark. Ozark. Mm. Oh, right. I think Oz- Ozark. Ozark is yes. amazing. Yes, that's yeah. brilliant. That's really good. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay, here's another question for you guys. What's, what's something that you <laughs> saw recently? What's the most recent thing where the score just annoyed you? The score really pissed you off, and you're like, ah, yeah, what the heck? Oh, oh there's this thing, this documentary I saw, um, bloody Gloria Vale. It was the worst score <laughs> No, I'm just kidding, because I know that was yours. Um, <laughs> you know, the funny thing is when you were saying that, I was like, yeah, I think I've seen that. That sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> that rings a bell. <laughs> so actually, having having a new baby, I haven't actually been to the, to the, to the cinema to watch a film yeah. for, God, feels like years. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm really dying to see Blade Runner, um, the new Blade Runner, to see what they've done with that. Right. Absolutely. I've heard good reviews. Oh really? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, a lot of diehard fans saying they've done a good job. Right. Mm. What? So, what do? You, is there a film score that you've listened to recently that, that, annoyed, that, that yeah. annoyed me? I'm not sure. Because I mean, I guess the reason I'm asking that is is that um, you know, you were sort of saying before about how you, what well, you were alluding to the fact that maybe you felt that film scoring was going through a. A, a period where people are just chucking sounds together, weird sounds. So I was just wondering what the impetus for that is. What what the point? What was the tipping point for you? You're just like ah, kids these. Oh yeah. Well, because I I grew up as a huge fan of John Williams, I think, and and then started to get into some of the Giacchino stuff and and Alexander Dupla, a whole a whole bunch of new composers coming through. But then there just seemed to be a lot of, and I I know it's easy to bag on. Hans Zimmer, but actually he is an innovator. And oh, he he's amazing! Incredible, beautiful music. Mm. Whatever um, you think of of his music, I mean, you you've got to give it up for that guy. I mean, he has revolutionized film music, and yep, um, absolutely, I can't think of off the top of my head too many people who can do what he's done. I mean, his ideas, the way he sort of like introduces kind of concepts and ideas, but also the fact that he can tour around the world and attract such a wide and varied audience. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I'm a fan, you know. I mean, uh... you you, t- you talked earlier about uh, a number of things that I wanted to pick threads up from uh, about technology, yeah, but also um, that you're working with composers from, uh, sorry, directors from all around the world. Yeah, yeah. So, are you recording with? Uh, so, there's two th- parts to this okay. question. Yeah. Are you recording with live musicians for those films, and how do you do the back and forth with those directors? Um, so, the answer to the first one is: Am I using live musicians? Yes. Yes, when I can. Um, and how do I go back and forth with directors? Uh, it's it's a challenge. Um, I think Skype obviously is a great thing. Yeah. I, I think it's just really constant communication. I, I really want to be talking to people I'm working with every day. Um, uh, I've had a couple of different experiences and, and um, of, of late. Um, so if we go back to say like something like Human Traces, which... The director Nick Nick was in the room with me when I was when we were writing the score, um, and that whole period of writing, we, we I, had, I only had two weeks to write the entire thing and to to record the entire thing. So it was and Whoa. so him being there was was great was was amazing actually. Um, two weeks to write and record forty five minutes of yeah forty five minutes of music. Uh, it was that's in, that's insane. It was yeah. um it was a challenge <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, but that, that's that's pretty standard for for film budgets these in indie films anyway, isn't it? Th- yeah. These days. Well, yeah. I mean, it, through a number of circumstances, we only ended up having, uh, yeah, two weeks. But um, why I think that worked was because communication. We were talking every day. Um, 
And even if it was just like five minutes, you were just talking about ideas. And there was a great shift in the in the concept for the score about halfway through the the editing process, whereby uh, initially they wanted to synthesize a score, a score all made up of you know synths and electronic sounds, uh, and they that's what they budgeted for. And then uh, halfway through, it, they were like, you know what, I think we're gonna need some real instruments. And that was a, I mean, it was a challenge. I really enjoyed the process, and I the reason that it was we were able to do it in that time frame. Uh, was because Nick was really generous and actually sat in. So I'd bring him things and we'd we'd try out try out things against the scenes. Um, I'd I'd write things up and demo them, and if he gave the thumbs up, then I'd just go like basically leave the room, go and record them, <laughs> and come back. <laughs> um, most of it was mixed in two weeks as well because um, at the end of the day I'd send off any anything that was written, recorded, signed off. I'd, I'd send to uh, my friend Mark Wilshire in London. Yeah, uh, he's a music editor and and score mixer there, and he'd mix it overnight. He'd premix everything and then send it back the next day, so that we'd be sitting in my room, be able to play back the the five one premix, so that at every stage of the um, the score, Nick was involved and he was there saying, "Okay, yes, this is um, this is what I want," and that was a really great experience. So yeah, that's the best, you know, having someone in the room with you, that's, that's, or having close someone in the same kind of geographical place is just really good. <laughs> there yeah. is actually something great about tight timelines, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Fast decisions. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and then, you know, people who are not in the same country, that's um, where Skype is a, is a real big plus. Again, nothing beats actually being in the same place. Um, so ideally at some point in the, films gestation you um it would be ideal if you could both be in the same room for a couple of hours that's not always possible skyping every day messaging every day sending music all the time and um that's a really there's some really challenging things if you're trying to sell a director on the idea of a certain sound or a certain performer um and you know it's you know if they were in the room with you that they might go, oh, can we try this, this way, and this way, and this way? Um, and Skype only gives you sort of so much latitude with that. Right. So it's really yeah. about, I mean, it's, it's, I keep repeating this, communication and constant communication. Mm. Um, the other overseas experience I've just finished, I had a documentary to score. It was like 88, 82, 82 minutes of music. Shit. Uh, only I had, a, I had an hour Skype with a director and then he basically directed me to like a essentially what was a Google Doc with every single cue, every single part of the film, and just his what he wanted for each cue. And I would, you know, write the piece, record it, and send it to to him. And he'd give me notes in the doc. And then, yes, no, change this, change that. <laughs> I mean, he, he, you know, it, it was great. I mean, he was a, he was really good and. He was very clear at communicating, but mm. non nonverbal communication, as in just like, felt so, uh, felt so sort of detached. Do you know what I mean? It was like, like, like clinical or something. Yeah, but I mean, his communication via written communication was his pretty succinct. But to not have anybody face to face talking to you, yeah, especially mm. for, for for like you know eighty two minutes of music, that's a, that's a lot of a uh, lot of stuff. And um, do you prefer a lot of instruction, a lot of specific feedback, or do you prefer to be left to your own devices? Because sometimes, mm. as, as a musician, I actually prefer to be told 
yeah. you know what what the what the the music director or whatever oh, was because otherwise it's like if you don't know it's like is this good do you, yeah. do you like what i'm doing yeah, yeah. Oh, no, i know i i need constant feedback because um yeah the reason i'm doing this is because um a director has been you know just decided to trust me to do the music for help tell the story that they're trying to tell. Yeah, you're serving a vision, right? right. So. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, and th- th- I mean yeah. that's what I'm. Um, that's my 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 aim is to do is, is to help serve the director's intent. And, um, you know, I think there was probably when it's easy to take stuff personally when you you know when you're first starting out and, and someone's like you know what that 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 C minor chord really sucks. What the hell are you thinking? <laughs> yeah, and uh, you you're like you know you, it's easy to just sort of put your head in the sand and go, yeah. Or, you know, what is it, Don Music, the guy on Sesame Street, he used to bang his head on the keyboard keys. <laughs> Easy to be that guy. But um, but now it's just like, I, I mean, I don't, um, I want to know. And I want to know if someone thinks something sucks. I want I, I, I want them to be able to feel like they can just say that and it's not going to have any kind of emotional ramification or I'm not going to take it on board as a personal insult. I just want to know yeah. how to, to give you what you want, basically. Right. Yeah, I'm. I'm with you, Danny. I think constant, uh, constant communication is is and constant feedback is really really great. There are times where you just do want to be left to your own devices, where you want to do a bit of thinking and a bit of sandboxing. You know, um, throwing some ideas around. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it's um, it's like you you want that feedback, you want that communication. I think a lot of people make that presumption that as an artist, you'd rather be left to your own devices. And and they see it maybe as being more creative, but I I feel like it's actually quite creative to take instruction when a when a direct when a um a music producer says can oh, it be more like this and you essential. have to try and make that happen yeah it's actually a very creative process I, I feel like we've we've been leaving this last bit or this bit for for the end because it was the juiciest part that I wanted to talk about which was the Ed Sheeran <laughs> uh, encounter and the Hobbit work that you oh, did awesome yeah so you. You wrote a song that appeared in the movie in, in the Hobbit. Films. Oh yeah, I wrote two in the first in the first movie. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, was the the first one was in uh, when they were doing the dishes around yeah, the yeah. the dinner table. Yeah. Right. So how did that come about? Um, I was I just started um, putting a temp score together for the Hobbit, and I got an email from Fran saying, "Would you like to take a shot at?" putting this scene to music here's what we kind of think it, it might need do you just want to give it a shot i was like uh love to i mean i was like i don't know if i can do this it's just you know uh and i was kind of freaking out going oh my god uh <laughs> this is this is uh, this is i mean great but but i'm not sure if i can make something like this and then what happened was that uh they gave an email that was kind of a really really great ideas and really great sort of things to think about and then I just got a couple of friends together and we went out and had dinner, had a couple of drinks and um, uh, I'd, I'd made like three different backing pieces of music and three different melodies and I was like, well, let's go and take a shot. And we just ended up having a really good time. So at the end, halfway through, I was just going, you know what, I'm enjoying this so much. If they hate it, I don't. it doesn't matter. This has actually been a really good experience. <laughs> it's been fun. So if it goes only this far, then, then that's fine. And awesome. I sent it off. And they were really happy, and that they they had a couple of changes that were, were were great notes, and I did those, and then I sort of sat back and went, oh great, well that's that's sort of done, and then they emailed back saying, great, so now can you record it, and then can you teach it to the cast? <laughs> yeah, um, and that was that was a cool experience. It was uh, intimidating turning up for the first rehearsal and seeing you know the entire dwarf cast and. Um, 
and Martin <laughs> standing there. Yeah. And um, a couple of a couple of them, I was like, I was kind of fanboys of because um, Richard, who 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 uh, um, who uh, was in a, a TV program called Spooks, which I was a big fan of. And when he walked in the room, I was like, oh my god, I can't do this, man. This is this is like. um but it was it was good they were all really cool and um they were just great i think the coolest thing that one of the coolest things that happened was um no one threw anything that was that was that was that was good um there was one guy uh that prior to going into rehearsals fran sort of said oh um you know that uh one of these guys is 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 quite a musician and i was like oh (laughs) um so um uh james nesbitt who uh, oh of course yeah they said yeah james you know he, he's he can play the the tin whistle really well he's amazing and so i was like oh, okay and like, you, you should get him to, to do something i was like okay cool all right so in the rehearsal i sort of um you know went up to him and say hey uh so there's a rumor that that you're you know a really great tin whistle player and, and i would be so happy that if, if you would consider you know playing something on this would you be up for it he's like uh, you know, I don't really play very well. I haven't played in a while. Um, I'll, I'll give it a go. And I was like, yeah, but could you, could you bring something to the next rehearsal? And he's like, okay, we'll give it a go. And I was like, cool, great. And then the next rehearsal turns out, and I was like, oh, man, maybe he just doesn't really want to do it. And <laughs> he was sort of looking a bit sheepish, just kind of going, uh, and he had this tin whistle sticking out of his pants, right? And um, He just happened to have one with him in the country. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, he actually had more than one. And um, And I told him the key, and he was like, I'll make sure I bring the right one. And we get to a point in the song and I was like, yeah, I think now would be a good time to, to take a solo. So I point to him and he's just like nonchalantly pulls out the flute and just rips out the solo. And the whole room's like, what? <laughs> what just happened? Because it was amazing. It was just really fluid and beautiful and right in the spirit of the song. And it just was perfect. It was just like the whole room like lit up and everyone was like, yeah. <laughs> and, um, that's what, that's the solo that appears on the, on the, on the recording. And yeah, it was a really cool experience actually. I, it was, it was terrifying teaching, um, you know, those guys, the song, but they were all so cool and so patient um, and so up for anything that um, yeah. it was, it was a really good experience. Is it true that the Ed Sheeran thing turned around in like two or three days? Like the, from the from him arriving, writing the song, recording it, and getting it. Yeah, 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 totally. So, so this is a bit embarrassing. So you recorded the the song. You, yeah, I recorded. Yeah. yeah, parts of it, and and um, I, yeah, okay. This is a, this is a how out of because it's a worldwide smash hit. That song. Yeah, like, yeah. A, we're talking about we're talking about icy fire. Yeah, yeah, right. Just yeah. yeah. So so yeah, how that right. started was um, uh, uh, Fran and Peter and Philippa were looking for somebody to to write the song for the end of the of the film and they were looking around they're throwing some names around and, and then i think fran said oh look our friend ed sheeran could probably do it and i was like oh cool i had no idea who ed sheeran was for some reason when she said that i thought i was thinking of um ed o'brien or some guy from radio the guy from radiohead and i was like all right because <laughs> i hadn't slept for a long time i was like oh great that'll be awesome and then she I got hold of Ed's first album and there's a there's a bonus track on the end of it called The Parting Glass, which is an old Irish traditional song. And I heard him sing that and I was like, wow, this guy's really good. He's a great voice. He arrives in the country. Uh, we go and have dinner with him and he's like just really cool. And his managers, they're just both cool guys. They're not at no point did you get the air that they were like stars or, you know, big time. They were just down to earth. 
Yeah. And um, uh, so the next day, Ed went and watched the movie and he came out and he was like, okay, I think I've got an idea. And at that point, the idea was just that he would record the demo with me and then go and record it with Peter Coven and Kirsty Wiley from Abbey Road, who were working a couple of doors down. And um, so he worked, he walked in, it was like 11 o'clock. It's pretty much like this outside, except blowing horizontal rain, you know, Wellington in summer. Um, <laughs> and he, he said, oh, look, I've got this idea. Let's, let's just record some things and see how it goes. So he started off with the guitar figure that you hear in the beginning of the, of the, um, of the song. And he just played that a couple of times and then kept playing. And then he was like, I think I've got a, a structure, an idea. And he, he laid down a couple of passes of the entire song just like on his guitar without singing. And then he said, oh, okay, now we're going to do- I'll just double that. And then I'm going to add some percussion. He started hitting his guitar and immediately you're just like going, this guy's an amazing guitar player. And he's just so relaxed about the whole thing. And then he, he, he sort of said, oh, well, after about an hour of that, he's like, I'm going to try some words. And what was great was that he, he didn't have any lyrics. He was just sort of um, using kind of phonetic sounds and sort of trying different melodies for a while and jumping around the song, trying different things out. And then it's like slowly he filled in the, the verses and slowly these words came to him and he just wrote them down. And then he just sung it straight through a couple of times. And I was just sitting there going, this guy is amazing. Like, he can sing. My God, he can sing. And uh, he was like, I'll just double my voice and then I'll do the harmonies. And he's like, oh, maybe we can add some, like, some electronic stuff. So we, we put in some piano and some um, 808 and uh, a shaker and things like that in there. Then he was like, ah, oh, yeah, I think, I, think, I think we're done. And the song was, th- like, in, like, four hours, pretty much. The song was done, recorded. It was all there. And it was just amazing, like, listening to him singing. And we didn't even do it in a studio. We did it in a room, you know, just like a room at your house, something like that. And uh, wow. it just sounded so good. I mean, it's his singing, his playing was so great. And at no point was he ever like, Hey, I'm the greatest. He was just a humble down to earth guy, very focused and just pursuing the idea and, and, and crystallizing it, uh, in, in rapid time. It was, it was unbelievable. And then he said, okay, well, I think we should play it to, to, to Peter and Fran and Philippa and see how they, they think about it. See what they think. And when they were like, double thumbs up, this is great. And Ed was like, I, I wouldn't mind maybe adding a few string parts onto it do you think we could do that? And they're like, yeah, we could do that tomorrow. I was like, great. And at this point, it's still a demo, right? I'm still like, great, demo will record it properly tomorrow. And then the next day comes and Peter Wiley and Kirsty and Graham from Radio New Zealand set up in the ADR room at Park Road Post. And we hurriedly got together two string players, um, uh, a cello player and a, and a violin player, both of which I'd worked with before. And I think they're, they're pretty fantastic. Um, so Ed, we had the cello player come in first and Ed recorded, um, he just sort of basically showed the cello player what he wanted him to play. He recorded a couple of times and that was great. And then he went and then the violin player came in the violin player I'd, I'd worked with before and he's a good player, but I think, he, I think he might've had an off day and I think he just freaked out when he saw Ed and cameras because Ed was like saying, Hey, this is the part I want you to play. And the guy just wasn't quite getting it. And I think the more he didn't get it and the more the cameras and everything, he just sort of freaked out. Right. Yeah. And, um, he, we tried a couple of times and Ed was in the con uh, on the studio with me. And he was just like, I, man, we, we, this is just not, uh, not going so great. 
and he's getting more and more a bit frustrated not nasty but just like oh man you know i've shown him so many times what else do we have to do and then he's like man i, I think i could play this better if you get me a violin i'm gonna do it i was like really he was like, yeah <laughs> shit hey we're good thanks bye and so um <laughs> the violinist left ed said look if you can get me a violin i used to play the cello when i was eight i haven't played a string instrument for a long time but we can give it a go and so uh, uh fran and peter's daughter was at school and she borrowed an old violin from a school friend of hers and they brought it in <laughs> we went back into the room that, that i was working out of and it took him a little while but he got it and um that's him playing on the song that's him playing the violin and he never i don't think he'd ever played violin before um oh my god and it was just so effortless. He was so focused and so good and such a great singer and such a great player. And none of it seemed contrived. He was just such a great, uh, just to see that come together and just, you know, to work with. He was just so good, so relaxed. And you didn't re-record it. That, that's the version that's... He recorded, he re-recorded a few vocals, but right. um, in the ADR room. And he was like, oh, I think I prefer the ones we did in here. So for as far as I know, that that's yeah, that's what went out. <laughs> Far out. Yeah, I mean, but he also, we also had the, the 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 great privilege of having, you know, Peter Carvin and Kirsty Wiley mix it, and those two are a force from outer space. They are unreal. <laughs> yeah. So what what are you what are you working on now? What are you working on at the moment? Um, Can you talk about it or is uh, it? Sure, sure. Uh, I just finished a um, a documentary called Hippocratic, which is uh, a documentary about a doctor from India who's kind of a uh, it's kind of really kickstarted the palliative care movement in India and, and kind of around the world. And it's, it's him exploring the Hippocratic Oath and how it relates to his childhood, his, his village, um, the country of India and, and the, and the world. Um, mm. that's premiering in a couple of weeks in Australia. Uh, a, film I scored last year, Human Traces, has just come back from Toronto and opens in theatres here, I think, in November. Just done a couple of short films. I just uh, a couple of weeks ago, or a month ago now, I guess, I finished a film called Wolf Warrior 2, which was a Chinese film. I was a music editor on that. Uh, and uh, that film has broken records and that's the highest grossing film in chinese box office history now uh, wow holy shit. Yeah, the amount of money it's i don't even know i've lost count of the amount it's gross but imagine how many people have heard your work then oh yeah man like oh well <laughs> as a music editor i hope no one <laughs> <laughs> no one's like <laughs> <Good> hey <laughs> um but uh, the composer for that film was Joe Trapanese, who's uh, who's extraordinary. He worked with Daft Punk on the Tron score. All right. Yeah, man, he's he's one guy to watch out for. He's extraordinary. He's a uh, cool guy, beautiful writer, and as and one of those guys who is melding, uh, you know, a lot of interesting sort of sounds with kind of a real strong contemporary musical language. Um, yeah. And somebody i think who yeah you should definitely keep an eye out because he's uh um a very 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 good composer and a very very good storyteller too and um he's got a he and a bunch of other composers in la have got like a collective uh contemporary music ensemble called the echo collective so they all perform each other's works and whilst they all kind of um work on other scores i think there's another woman is it zoe mcintosh she wrote the score for z for zachariah which 
was a, was a, was a really good school too. So um, there's that. Um, working on another film. Uh, working on a horror film out of Canada. Um, yeah. Which is going to be kind of a comedy horror film, which which pays tribute <laughs> to a, a bunch of like classic sort of you know Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street type um, type films. Uh, nice. And a installation for a museum somewhere i can't remember what it is uh it's <laughs> yeah i know that's vague isn't that how vague is that um <laughs> museum somewhere i'm sure there's a museum somewhere yes yeah, somewhere it. actually no i don't i think it's down south i i don't i mean it's, i just um it's uh something that doesn't exist yet so i'm not sure how much i can say but it's a uh it's a uh, not really a museum but a kind of an, a visitor experience center that will be somewhere right. in the south island uh and it'll uh, yeah uh, <laughs> it doesn't exist yet but it will and it'll be it'll be awesome could you be less specific <laughs> yes i probably could <laughs> but before we run out of time one one other thing i wanted to ask you was um for all the upsides of working in the, in the entertainment world mm-hmm. um there are a lot of frustrations it can be a difficult industry technology changes culture changes there's a lot of people in both the movie and the music industry who are jaded and cynical and that sort of stuff Thank how goodness. do you keep yourself how do you keep yourself positive and uh, how do you focus focus yourself to not be weighed down by that stuff and, and keep moving forward? That's a really good question. Um, it's a really, really good question. I don't have, um, well, I don't know. Something that works for me uh, is that working with, with people who I really like and, and really learn from um, is, yep. is, is one of, is, is great. Is really, really fantastic. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, working with people like David Long, working with people like Mark Wilshire, working with the with the great people out at Park Road and the, and the sound crews and sound contractors, that helps. You know, because those people are amazing. They're generous. I learn a lot from them. They're very patient and they raise the bar so that you feel like you are constantly trying to be as good as what they are. And and they are trying. Right. For me, that people like Mark and Dave especially are two people who, um have taken what I used to think the bar was to be a composer and a music editor respectively and raised it so high that, you know, if, if I get halfway there in my lifetime, I'll be happy. Um, <laughs> but, but they give me something to aim for and something to strive to, to be at, at least, you know, um, a quarter of uh, as, as, as good. Um, so there's yeah, that. Yeah. Um, there's also the fact that, um, I think uh, time management is really good. <laughs> like if I can, I don't do this a lot, but I, I find like I have a better day if I get up at five in the morning and I write for a couple of hours, or I work for a couple of hours before I, you know, make the kids lunches and take them to school. Then um, that's a, that's a, a, I feel like I've achieved something before I even leave the house. And um, I get a lot of, a lot more stuff done because there's no phone calls. There's no emails usually. Um, and the other one is just having a really understanding and tolerant family i feel really lucky to have or be a part of the family that you know my wife and our two children um and 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 working in this industry can be really tough on families it's not really very family friendly um environment sometimes but so those things really help keep me focused and help keep me feeling fortunate and lucky uh and also, I mean, if if everything ended tomorrow and you know I I couldn't do this anymore, I'd be just like, well, you know, it, it it's been a lot of <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. I learned a lot of stuff. 
and anything that happens from now on is just a bonus. I just feel really lucky to be able to do this. Um, and like I said, just knowing people who constantly raise the bar and inspire you to do more. Um, I think that's a great answer. And and coffee, a lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I think keeping it. your mind in the right place is a really important part of you know running a business and working in the creative world. And there's certain people, I mean, I feel really uplifted after actually chatting you for the last. Oh, thank you, man. That's awesome. There's a good energy there, you know. Thank you. Yeah, and that, you that's guys. the thing. I mean, like when you know we were talking about Victoria Kelly before. Same thing, right? She's got such a great energy. And I've yes, seen this in, in, a, in a number of different places, um, on a number of different situations that, you know, could be intimidating and, um, and, and pretty full on and just break people. But she's just always got this great energy. And then like looking at people like that and going, that's the way to do it, man. Like honestly seeing her, I mean, she was working on, um, on the last Hobbit film, doing a string arrangement. Uh, and we were sitting, it was getting recorded by the London Metropolitan Orchestra and we were sitting in at Park Road watching it go down, right? And halfway through, the orchestra takes its first break and then the, the, we're talking in the room and, and someone was like, hey, um, do you think we could just get an extra 16 bars kind of there? And Victoria's like, um, yep. <laughs> so she takes a, a napkin, literally like a napkin, rolls the napkin up, writes 16 bars of new music, we like take a photo of it and send it to Abbey Road. <laughs> the copyists grab it on the break, and then five minutes later, it's on the stand when the orchestra comes back. No shit. And that was just like, oh my god! Wow. <laughs> that takes poise, man. Yeah. That's the entire amazing. Time, the that entire is. time, she's just like, hey, you know, you know, just just a great energy. And then at <laughs> six o'clock in the morning, we we leave, and she's like, okay, I'm flying home because it's my daughter's birthday today. You know, and that's, I just. Just that energy and that focus and that intent, that's really inspiring. <laughs> that's that's awesome. fantastic. Next time you guys are in Wellington, call me up and uh, let oh, me buy you a drink. And, um, you know, if, oh, man. if I can, yeah. if if, uh, if you're interested and I can I can swing it, come and have a look around Park Road. Absolutely. Oh, that would be so good. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Great stuff. Hey, thank you, um, Stephen Gallagher, for agreeing to do this and being such a um, a great guy to talk to. It was so good, man. I just loved that conversation so much. And um, thanks again, of course, to Stonefield Bases, www.stonefieldmusic.com. Check it out. And also thank you to you guys for listening in every every fortnight and cheering and liking the, um, the posts. We really do appreciate it. It does not go unnoticed, and it helps us out immensely. Absolutely. Take care of yourselves. Have a good week. Take it easy. If you find what we're doing useful and you like this podcast, please do like, share and subscribe and give us a review on iTunes.